Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. We've been studying now the book of Revelation for 10 weeks, if you count the prequel to the series. We began on April the 10th, and we have learned much. We have seen much in the book of Revelation, but I believe we come today to the greatest part of the book. I believe we come today in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, the last two chapters in the Bible. I think we come to the highlight, uh, the climax of the entire story, maybe of the entire Bible. I also believe that there's potential here for life change uh, that uh, far exceeds anything we have read so far. Uh, i just go through some of this. If, if, if you have a heart that's filled with worry, here you can find peace in these two chapters. If you're struggling with pain or loss, in these last two chapters, you can find comfort. Uh, if you're crushed with disappointment, you can find encouragement. You can find here motivation if you feel burned out or ready to give up. Certainly, we can find here reasons to orient our entire lives around the glory of God. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior here, you will find a clarion call to turn from your sins and embrace the once-for-all forgiveness of God. These are the two chapters I've been looking forward to preaching uh, ever since April the 10th. So let's just begin reading. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the city, the sea, rather, was no more. And so there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, we don't know for certain if this is a uh, recreated earth, if this is a uh, uh, earth that has been mended in some way, or if this is an entirely new creation. There's really good biblical argument on both sides of that. Uh, but this perfect world and a perfect heaven, God presents to us right here at the beginning of this chapter. Uh, it says in verse 2, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for a husband. And so there's a new heaven and a new earth. This is after uh, the judgment seat of Christ. This is after uh, Satan has been thrown in the lake of fire. This is after the sheep and the goats have been separated and the saved and the lost and the lost have been sentenced to their eternal destruction. It says then there's this, this new city, this Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven and, and touches earth in some way. And we'll see some description of this as we go down through the passage. Verse 3 says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. You can't get better than that. It just says we'll be with him and he will be with us. He will live with us. He will pitch his tent with us. This is the same uh, verb that we see back in John 1.14 when it says that Christ came to dwell with us. And then verse 4, which we'll come back to and spend some time here. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Life here will be entirely different. Life in the new heaven, the new earth, this, this new Jerusalem will be entirely different than it is, than it is for us today. Uh, let's, 
Uh, I would love to read all of 21 and 22, by the way, uh, but you're, you're going to need some lunch and eventually some supper. <laughs> so let's skip down to verse 10 of chapter 21. It says, he then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. The 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. And so this is the beginning of a description of this great city. It says in verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out in a square, its length and width are the same. And he measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. That would be about 1,400 miles. Its length, width and height are equal. So imagine a cube, 1,400 miles one way, 1,400 miles another way, 1,400 miles tall. It says, then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the human measurement which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Now, we don't know if these measurements are literal measurements. I want to believe that they are, at least in some way, or they are symbolic. I think certainly they are symbolic. I think the message here is not so much provided so that we can sketch off a drawing of the new Jerusalem as it is that we are comforted by the fact that there will be room for all of us. Jesus said, I've gone to prepare a place for you and there will be room there for you. And there is, and there is. We see much here about the stones. And if you read on some of the verses, we'll probably skip today. You see some of the specifics of the stones Well, let's go down at least to verse 21. The 12 gates are 12 pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Uh, Verse 23, the city does not need sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. So we see something of these precious stones, these gems. We see pearls, we see gold. Uh, What does that mean? Well, I believe in some way that is a literal description, but I I think, again, it's more than that. Uh, John, the one who is writing this this book, this revelation, uh, is describing what he sees. But I think he sees something so fantastic that he doesn't have adequate words to tell us all that he sees, and so he just uses the best words he has. And the The most valuable, the most beautiful things he knew of were pearls and gems and gold. And so he used those words. And um, I think the message is that that it'll be beautiful, that it'll be breathtaking what God has prepared uh, for this this city. Let's let's skip over to chapter 22. And I would encourage you, go home and read 21 and 22. Look at verse 4. It says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. We will see the face of God. And then skip down to verse 20. 
He who testifies about these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Now those are the words of Christ. Christ says, I'm coming soon. Now soon here means imminent. Uh, Not um, soon on the calendar. Uh, It has been a couple of thousand years since then. But soon in the sense that it could happen at any moment. And so the events we read of in the book of Revelation are events that can happen at any moment. These events could begin at any moment. Some of those have begun. Um, But the rapture of believers out of this world and the judgment poured upon this earth uh, and ultimately the the, the judgment in heaven and the new heaven and new earth, any moment. But here's what I really want you to see, the response. I'm still here in verse 20, the response of John, uh, the apostle John. He says, amen. That means he's agreeing. It's good news when Jesus says, I am coming soon. Then he says, come Lord Jesus. He says, I'm ready. Come soon. I'm waiting. The sooner the better is what John says. The sooner the better. Well, that's the story of Revelation 21 and 22. But I want us to go back and I want to pick out three things here that we, that we talk about at more length. We made some promises when we began. We said that there are encouraging words here. They give us hope, they give us strength, they give us motivation. Well, how is that? Where, what are those words? Well, let's look at it like this. First, I want you to see the nature of heaven. Uh, the Bible has so much to say here about heaven. How do we learn of the details of heaven? Well, let me tell you how we don't learn them. We don't learn them by reading books or watching Netflix specials. Uh, by people who claim to have gone to heaven and have returned to bring us a description. Listen, church, that is 100% bogus. What God wants you to know about heaven, God has put in his book about heaven. And we are people of the book. If God wanted to give us the details of some that we read in some of these crazy, though Very popular books among Christians, Uh, sadly, uh, God would have put those things in his book. This is the only authority that we have on heaven. If you want to read a book about heaven, I would encourage you to read a book by Randy Alcorn, simply called Heaven. And his book is just about the scripture and what the scripture says about heaven. But in this book, in his book, he describes, he helps you see into scripture So many more details about heaven than you've probably ever noticed before. So how do we know what heaven is like? Well, we turn to the word of God. Now here we see something just in this passage, 21 and 22, we see these things about heaven. We read about the pearls and the gems and the gold. Uh, But I, I want you to understand that to describe heaven, to fully describe heaven, is a very difficult task. And I think it's difficult even for the Bible. That is why there are, uh, there's so much symbolic language here and there are so many holes in the description. And I'm not being critical of the Bible. The Bible is just what God wanted it to be. But there are a lot of questions about heaven that there just aren't answers for. Now, why is that? It is difficult to describe to somebody 
something that they have never experienced before. Does that make sense? I can't describe something to you if you don't have anything to compare it with. And I think there is so much about heaven. There is so much here that if God were to explain it, it would make no sense to us because we just don't have the reference points to understand. Years ago, I was a, I was a youth minister in Mississippi and a, a friend of mine, another youth minister, he brought a speaker in to speak to his youth group. And then uh, my youth minister friend got sick and he couldn't get his speaker back home. Uh, so that task fell to me and I drove the youth speaker back to his home four or five hours away. Uh, but what's interesting about the story is that the youth speaker was 100% blind and had been blind from birth. And I'd never really spent any time around somebody that was 100% blind and blind from birth. And so I just thought we're going to be four or five hours together in the car and I'll never see this guy again anyway. I'm just going to ask him everything I've wanted to know about blindness. And so I probably wasn't the most sensitive guy in the world, but I just wanted to know. And I thought this is my chance. And so I started asking him, well, what do you think such and such looks like? And what do you think about this and that? And it was a fascinating conversation. We talked much about colors. What does it mean that something is red or blue or green? Well, he had no concept of the colors. What's the difference in a red hat and a blue hat? And how can you tell that it's a red hat or a blue hat from all the way across the room? And, of course, he didn't understand. So I thought I would try to educate him, and I would explain to him the difference between red and blue and green and purple and how you can tell from a distance. And, listen, I, I utterly failed, of course. I, he had no reference to understand colors. There was, there was no way to explain it to him. And then we started, I don't know how we got on this, but we started talking about what it meant to look into the eyes of someone you love. And if you love somebody and you have eyesight, you know what that is to look into their eyes. And, uh, but I tried to explain that to him and it's just no concept. I had no words. I didn't, I fumbled around because you can't explain something to somebody if they have no reference. And I think much of what heaven is about, there's just no reference. There's there's no way for us to understand. So, so there's much symbolic language and there are holes in the description. But what the Bible can do and what it does is it tells us what's not in heaven. Okay, there are some things that we can understand. And so we look back to chapter 21, verse 4, where it lists some things. It says there's, there's no crying, that there's no death, that there's no grief, there's no pain. I read one a uh, Bible commentator this week, he found 12 things in these two chapters uh, that the Bible tells us are not in heaven. There's no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no thirst, no wickedness, no temple, no night, no closed gates, no curse. And he goes through each of those and, and we learn something about heaven like that. Uh, I'll add my own to the list. There's, there's no disappointment in heaven. We won't be disappointed in anything. In the slightest way, nothing will seem like it ought to be better than, than it is. There will be no regrets in heaven. We're not going to look back with regret on anything we've ever done or experienced. And there will be no dissatisfaction in heaven. We will be fully satisfied. Well, so then that brings the question, are you ready to go to heaven? 
You know, I wonder what would happen if we voted on it today. You know, we're a Baptist church. We like to vote on things. So let's say we pass out ballots and we've either all got to go or we all got to stay. So we're voting on heaven. And we'd have to combine the vote because I think we have a different vote in summit than celebration. Uh, but uh, what do you think the vote would be? I, I know certainly it wouldn't be unanimous. Uh, even amongst just believers, it wouldn't be unanimous that people want to go to heaven. And I'm not even sure that heaven would win. <laughs> I'm not even sure a majority of people would say, I am ready. Let's vote. Let's get it done. Before lunch today, let's go. So why is there so much reluctance? If heaven is so wonderful, why are we not more eager to go to heaven? Well, that's the second thing I want to talk to you about, the reluctance of believers. I remember as a young Christian, a younger Christian, how I really didn't want Christ to return. I would hear people preach on, come Lord Jesus. I would read it in the end of the book, come Lord Jesus. And I would think, no, Lord Jesus, don't come, not now. Why do believers not want Jesus to come? I think we can learn something from this. There are Best I understand three reasons why that's the case. Number one, we fail to appreciate the wonder of heaven. Uh, heaven will be the perfect satisfaction for every desire. And heaven will cancel out FOMO. Do you know that word, the fear of missing out? Uh, there's so much that we want to do. I think that keeps us from being eager about going to heaven because we don't want to miss out on something. You know, a young person might say, I don't want to miss out on getting married. I don't want to go to heaven. I hadn't gotten married yet. A young person walking faithfully with the Lord might say, I don't want to go to heaven because I want to have sex. Uh, don't say you hadn't thought about that. I don't want to go to heaven because I want to have children. I don't want to go to heaven because I want to watch my children grow up. I don't want to go to heaven because there's still something I want to accomplish in my career, in my life. I don't want to go to heaven because I've got to vacation planned. I've heard people say that. I don't want to go to heaven because I'm looking forward to retirement. But listen, heaven is going to make all of those things seem like sixth grade graduation. Do you remember your sixth grade graduation? Now, if you're a sixth grade school teacher here, I appreciate you and the important work you do. <laughs> I can remember when I was a sixth grader and I found out I was going to graduate. That was a highlight. We had graduation rehearsal. We wore graduation clothes. I don't remember what they were. But that was the highlight. I thought, boy, this is going to be one of the most remarkable days of my life. Sixth grade graduation. <laughs> but you know, I look back on that from this perspective and that was just silliness, right? I mean, nothing changed. What, do you, what happens after sixth grade graduation? You go to seventh grade. It looks like a pretty trivial thing standing here. Um, when we get to heaven, all of those things that we so long for in life will seem like sixth grade graduation. Now, if you have a heart to be married, if you don't have children and you have a heart for children, then 
You really want to graduate? You really want to accomplish something? All of that's good. We ought to be ambitious people, and there's nothing wrong with desiring to do those things. But I want you to know from heaven's perspective, all of that will pale and all of that will fade. To be in the presence of God, those things will be trivial matters. I think that keeps some from being eager about heaven. The second reason we're not eager to go to heaven is we fail to understand the point of our lives. Life is not about what you get to do, see, and experience. Life is about the glory of God. And to be able to stand one day in the presence of God, to sing to God, to praise God face to face, that's what life is about. And our greatest joy and our greatest satisfaction is not going to be because we got a promotion or because we achieved something or because there was a graduation or a baby or a wedding. The greatest joy in our life will be the experience of standing before God and to stand before God every day. Worship, worship him. Uh, John the Baptist got it right when he said, he must increase and I must decrease. And, and, and that's the problem. We're, we're not eager to go to heaven because we have increased and he has decreased. The apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul had, had the right understanding. He said, if I were to die, that would be a win. That would be a win. We fail to understand the point of our lives. And then the third reason I think we're reluctant is because we fail to understand the seriousness and the danger of sin. You know, sin lurks at our door. And while I'm forgiven of all sin as a child of God, past, present, and future, and I walk in confidence of God's grace and God's mercy, I know that I could fall to temptation and I could bring pain and agony to my family, to my friends, to my church. Listen, when I was younger, my arrogance led me to believe that I was impervious to the attack of Satan. But after I've seen so many friends and brothers in Christ fall, I no longer have that confidence. And listen, I love my life and my family, and I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. I love our ministry together here. I look forward to my kids growing up and grandkids one day. I can't believe I'm so old that I'm saying those kind of things. But I am. God has given me a respect for sin in the last few years that uh, I'll just tell you, if God says today that he's going to just call it and take us home, I'm ready. About a month ago, six weeks ago, um, a minister friend of mine, sort of friend, um, man I respected and that's and who's helped me through some things in my life. And a name you'd know, uh, he's not from this area, but he's nationally known, so many of you would recognize his name. But he got caught in some sin, serious sin. And he confessed. And uh, I want you to know, it just shook my world. Uh, 
I cried real tears. I have not been that disappointed in anything for a very, very long time. And I'll tell you the prayer that I prayed. I write down my prayers, uh, at least when I'm in my devotion time. And so this won't sound very elegant, uh, but I'm just going to read it to you. God, kill me before I embarrass the kingdom of God and disappoint my family and my church and my brothers in Christ like this man did. So I think we would be way more eager for heaven if we recognize the seriousness of sin that lurks at the door. Lurks at the door. And heaven too is, we should know, is more than just a destination. Heaven is a motivation. The more we think and learn about heaven, the more we're motivated to live a life that, that honors the Lord. Uh, listen to what C.S. Lewis said about thinking about heaven. Uh, he says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for this present world were the ones who thought the most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And you read their journals, you read their diaries, and all those men and women thought about was heaven. And because they thought about heaven, they made an impact here on earth. C.S. Lewis Ended the quote by saying it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. The Apostle Paul said it like this in Colossians 3. If you have been raised with Christ, that's all of us who are saved. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. When we are reluctant to go to heaven, um, it is an indicator that we misunderstand the beauty of heaven, the glory of God, and the danger of sin. And then finally, I want you to see the preparation and the anticipation of the destination. Uh, if you're going to a great destination, then there needs to be great preparation. Uh, I'm taking a group from our church to, uh, to Israel, and I'm leaving on... Saturday, Friday, Saturday. I'm leaving one day this week. I don't remember. <laughs> My wife is out of town today, so I don't know anything. I don't, I don't know anything. Uh, but I've been preparing for the trip. And uh, I've done a little bit of exercising, not as much as I should, I'm sure. I've done a little bit of studying, so I'll get more out of what I see and experience. I've made my travel arrangements. I've confirmed my airline's. I purchased some clothes for the trip, a little extra medical insurance. I mean, I've made a lot of preparations because the destination is worth it. I'm not just going to Sam's and Lufkin. <laughs> I'm going to the other side of the world, and it's a big deal for me. Well, the biggest deal is the destination of the new heaven and the new earth. So the question is, what kind of preparations are we making? And I do not have time to tell you. But I want to point you to something, and I, I want you to actually turn in your Bibles, if you can, to the book of 2 Peter. That's one of those difficult books to find. It's just right before the book of Revelation, 
five or six pages before Revelation begins, you'll come to 2 Peter. And I want you to turn there because I want you to be able to find this uh, this week. There is the passage right here at the end of the book of 2 Peter. Uh, Peter says that we look forward to our heavenly home, the new heaven and the new earth. So we do this. And the passage begins in verse 10. But I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. But I'll give you the challenge before I read. We'll go through this super quickly. But would you every day for a week just read these? Well, just start in verse 14. It's just five verses and you're you're at the end of the chapter. Or you can start in verse 10 if you want to catch some context. If you'll read this every day, just spend a couple of moments meditating on what these verses mean. You will know the packing list for eternity. You will know the preparation that God is looking to see you make. Look at verse 14. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, heaven, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight and at peace. Uh, So we need to make sure we've confessed our sins. We need to make sure we're living in a way that honors the Lord. Verse 15, also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. You know, the Lord has been patient with us. That's the only reason we're saved. And if you are not a child of God, the fact that God has not already cast you down because of your sin, is that's the patience of God. And the patience of God ought to call you to call to God, to trust in him. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, the patience of God can lead to salvation. Skip down to verse 17. You should read all of these verses. But verse 17 says, Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, so we're giving a heads up on this destination. Since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people and fall from your own stable position. So be students of Scripture. Verse 18, But grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. These, this is the packing list. These are the preparations. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Father in heaven, we're ready. We're ready. And I pray that every one of us will will be so prepared in our relationship with you that we can say, I'm ready. Lord, come quickly. Those that don't know you as their Savior, may they put their faith and trust in Christ today. His sacrifice upon the cross. Trusting in you is their only hope for forgiveness. Turning from their sins. Asking you to be the master of their lives. For those who who are children of God, but we're reluctant. Change our heart and our attitude. Let us live with an eager anticipation of standing face to face with you. Father in heaven, this this truth, this, this call to heaven, let it ring in our hearts and lives. And we pray this in Christ's name.
Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.